what's good, y'all? It's your girl, Chanae Ogwemike. And I am Lisa Leslie. I am the mentor, she's the mentee, and you guys are front and center. Hey, everybody. Uh, today, we wanted to talk about something they say never to talk about, but guess what? This is a safe space. We are talking about religion today, but we're going to do it a little differently because Lisa and I normally would choose a topic, talk through it ourselves, and then invite a guest to go a bit deeper. Now, today, we wanted to strip that all down a little bit and focus on two incredible conversations that we've had recently. Yes, Chanae and I, we've I'm sure if you've listened to any of our other episodes, you've already figured out that we're both Christian women. We love the Lord. We spend time talking about our faith and intertwining it in our conversation because that's what we do. We love the Lord. We try to listen, try to be good daughters, be good sisters, uh, me, be a good wife. Shanae is trying to be a good, um, well, quarantine boot bay. A a quarantine Wife in training. Wife in training. So, uh, we had some amazing conversations. So first, you guys will hear our conversation that we had with Olympic medalist Ibtihaj Muhammad. Uh, Ibtihaj is Muslim and um, a friend of mine who just I love and respect. And so I was really happy that we got a chance to have a great conversation with her. And then later, we'll talk to award-winning journalist Soraya McDonald, who is Jewish and Black. So there you have it. We are going to have these amazing conversations. And uh, well, Chene, what do you think? This is going to be pretty exciting because we recognize how similar we are, but also the differences. And it's really about inclusion at the end of the day. Absolutely. And I guess, you know, I just take this opportunity myself to say I'm Christian, but I am Catholic. And I had a point in my life where if you know anything about Catholic mass, it's very strict. It has a lot of very uh, practices that are regimented. And I think I sort of, even when I was younger, struggled with the idea of like, okay, what is this whole religion thing in the sense that other people practice their faith in different ways? You know, I see videos of different churches that were jumping, for lack of a better word. And I'd be like, man, we're sitting here, we're kneeling, we're getting up, we're singing very, you know, old school style and that type of stuff. But, if you know, I think as we grow, we always start questioning or challenging what what systems we grow up in. And I think Mm -hmm. as I was having these thoughts in my head, I also saw a lot of value as I grew older for being Christian, for being Catholic in the sense that, you know, our nature as professional basketball players means we're blessed to see different aspects of the world, Um, whether it's Russia or China or Italy that I've been to or Nigeria. One thing that I loved as I grew older, while I was looking at all these other different experiences, my friends were having. um, One thing I loved was that I was like, I was able to still feel a part of a greater community while being Catholic in the sense that, I could step into a church anywhere and know exactly we're praying the same prayers and, you know, you're getting the same readings from, you know, no matter where you are in the world. And that's how I sort of found my faith. And that faith has held me through, especially through the tough times. But I know everyone has different journeys with religion, but I'm probably Catholic and Christian. And I know what it's like to, you know, hear different things and people, you know, get tested. But I was able to see through the lens of the global nature of my faith in the sense that like our practices has really helped me find and care for my faith. How about you, Lise? You know, I think overall, it just comes back to the fact that most religions were all talking about the same God. And that is something that I heard Malcolm X talk about being Muslim and just the fact that we may call God different names, whether, you know, it's Allah or whatever it is. 
each religion may be different, but I think you're right. My travel across the world, being in Russia, being in Brazil, being in Asia, um, being living in Russia, actually, and living in Italy, um, there has been so many different experiences, but I've always loved religion. I almost had a minor in religion because I took so many religion classes because I think it talks about it for me and for us in the, from the Bible that you should learn about other religions. I think it's important to educate yourself. And so we just thought it'd be awesome to speak to other people from other religions, but also find out that we probably have a lot more in common than we think. And then secondly, there's so much to learn because, you know, you know, you and I both, our Asian is Jewish. We love a lot of parts, I think, from her culture that I've implemented with my family and my We've young kids. We've been to Shabbat multiple times. I love Shabbat. Come on now. Come <laughs> down on Friday. I'm all about it. So um, I, I'm just a lover of people and I love the information. And uh, I thought this was just an amazing topic. So we will be right back with Iftahaj Muhammad. Stay tuned. All right, our guest today is an entrepreneur, an activist, a speaker, and Olympic medalist in fencing, 2016 Olympic bronze medalist, um, five-time senior world medalist and world champion in 2016, Ibtahaj became the first American woman to compete in the Olympics in hijab. Please welcome Ibtahaj Muhammad. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So Ibtahaj, you know, you and I go way back. We have been on hundreds of, I think, panels on stage, uh, whether we were doing interviews, um, letting our voices be heard, especially as of lately with the social injustice in this climate. You and I have been on many panels for Nike, just speaking out, using our voices and making people aware of Black women, women in our space, and really speaking on social justice. But I wanted to have you on our show with Cheney and I, really to talk about something you and I have never discussed over many of these years that we've known each other. And that's about religion and just understanding our space and our beliefs, which are, as we know, different. But Wanting to find out first how, as a woman, you having representing your culture, representing your religion, how does that uh, play a part in your sports? Well, I think that my faith as a practicing, like observant Muslim, has really helped root me in sport, but also guide me. Mm-hmm. It's been a difficult journey as a black woman in a predominantly white sport, as a very visibly uh, Muslim woman, Mm -hmm. I haven't always been like accepted to be completely frank. And um, I feel like I I learned from a young age to lean on my faith, Um, even more so as a professional athlete. When I started to travel, like in in the sport of fencing, you can go to 12, 15 different countries a year just going to World Cups. You spend a lot of time on the road. Mm-hmm. And having the opportunity to spend a lot of time by myself, right, and have injuries or um, really not have a, a people that I was tight with when I was spending a lot of time on the road, it really, I think, forced me to lean, you know, more into my faith. And it, it kept 
I don't know, I feel like it's always kept me grounded, even in those moments of loss. You know, as athletes, we have, I mean, like like everything, there's yeah. a lot of ebbs and flows when it comes to sport. Maybe not for like someone as like dominant as Lisa, right? There's a lot more <laughs> wins. No way. Uh, for me, you know, like my climb through sport, it was, it was tough. When I graduated from college, I had no world ranking, had never been to a senior competition. And I thought, okay, I want to try to make a national team. And everybody around me thought I was crazy, right? Because I, I had never done those things. Um, I'd never been on like a junior cadet world team or anything like that. But for me, I wanted to see change in the sport. I wanted to see a black woman successful in the sport of fencing. So I kind of threw caution to the wind and I was like, no, this is something I, I can do. And um, there was so much like loss at first, you know, like you're just trying to like chip away at this impossible notion that you can be one of the top athletes in the world. And I honestly, I've always said that I feel like my faith is what got me through those difficult moments. Can you explain a little bit more in detail what your faith is being a Muslim and how you practice that, whether it's daily or your rituals or wearing the hijab and what that means. Because I feel like we, those, Chanae and I are practicing Christians. We talk about our Christianity a lot. I think it's more televised. I, don't, I think people really don't, unless you are a Muslim, have a lot of real information about what that means. And so can you share with us a little bit more detailed of what that means on a daily basis? Yeah, I mean, I think that, or when I think about faith and my connection with faith, it's a very like personal journey for me. Mm -hmm. And um, growing up, I, one of five kids, my parents both converted to Islam uh, in the 70s. Mm -hmm. And uh, so me and my siblings were all born into Islam. And when you're growing up, and I'm sure you guys can relate to this, like your parents kind of like are guiding you like through faith, right? So as a Muslim, my parents are telling me or like reminding me to pray, like waking me up, like to observe like Ramadan and to fast and that sort of thing. But when I went to college, um, I went to Duke, I was in North Carolina for four years. And um, that was the first time where I had like to really make a conscious decision of practicing faith on my own, mm. right? It's one thing to go through those motions when there's people around you. It's another thing to kind of make the conscious decision to do it on your own. And um, I felt that that's where I really learned in college that my faith is a part of my identity, right? I think that being Muslim, like, or as a Muslim, I believe in like the oneness of God, right? I don't associate God with um, any partners or anything like that. I think that's one of the the ways that you would really explain like what islam is and how islam like came and like where the revelation came from right because it's one of the abrahamic faiths right so it's very closely tied to christianity and judaism but i would say like the one major difference is that we don't associate any partners with god mm -hmm. um and i feel like there's parts of my faith that help me in my day-to-day -day, right like wanting to help others right and and really believing that my time on earth is to like serve others and to like serve god in a way right mm -hmm. is to try to show up in the world a better person every day and i think that that is my connection to faith right i think it helps me become a better person me wearing hijab 
Um, and I'm, you could ask a million women why they wear hijab and you'll get a million different answers. Mm. For me, my hijab is like a reminder of my faith, right? It's, it's something that I've worn since I was 12. And like when I explain what hijab is to me, it's kind of like putting on a shirt, right? It's like, I don't, you don't go outside without a shirt. I don't go outside without a hijab. And I don't know. It's just, I don't know my I don't know life without faith. I don't know what that looks like. And it keeps me so rooted it gives me purpose and like the way that I show up, the way that I show up for others. And I don't know what life is like without, without having faith. Now um, I have a quick follow up to that and please forgive me if I'm ignorant, but one thing that you've talked about and it resonates, I think with all of us is succeeding in spaces and places that weren't necessarily built for you. Right. And I think we all understand that being black women in different kinds of ways. What was the process like when you're in a sport that literally based on your faith and my limited knowledge of what your faith entails, um, it's not like one of those things that you can just put off for one day. Like, Oh, Sundays, this is when we have to go to church. Like it's a little bit more strenuous in the sense that it is constantly engaging you. So like when you were competing or when you are competing, how have you been able to educate people along the way to what your faith means and why they should be able to build a space within the sport for you to still maintain both? You know, I love that question because I have never felt a responsibility to like educate people on my existence. And I think that that is something that people kind of force onto people of color a lot, but specifically us as like black people, right? It's like, there, um, or even as Muslims, it's like, um, there's this idea that you have to kind of constantly explain yourself or qualify yourself. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to do that. That's what I loved about sport, right? Is that you don't have to. When I put on my fencing mask, I wasn't black. I wasn't, or people didn't identify me as like, you know, being black or being a girl or being Muslim. It was really about how good could you be? right? Like, what can you bring to the sport? What can you bring to the table? Can you beat the person on the other side of the strip? And I think that's what really, like, um, that's why I feel like I thrived in sport. I love that. I love that you could kind of check people's misconceptions about who you are and where you're from. And it was really about whether or not you could win. And even though I participated in a sport that the points, right, are really in the hands of the referee. So it's so subjective in a way. And like, that's something that my mom has always hated about my sport. She's like, whether or not you score a point is in the hands of the official to tell you. And like, my mom hates that. But um, when I started to think about it in a way that anything that's meant for me will never miss me. And that's something that to me comes from God, right? That anything that is meant for me will never miss me. And so when I stopped thinking whether or not the ref was going to try to screw me over in a match, whether or not, you know, my coach was going to show up for me in a match or like support me like with a bad call or something like that, I feel like I really found myself, right? Because I realized that nobody could change the direction of my journey. It was literally like, it's already been written, right? And so I just have to do everything I can, put in all the work, all the training, all the all the time and effort and like have that strong work ethic in order to kind of, you know, show up and, and win. Have you seen people though, because I think a lot of people are just now understanding their neighbors to the left and to the right and not just living in this tunnel vision. Have you seen people now sort of more recently been like, oh, wow, you're observing Ramadan. Like this is 
making what you're doing that much more impressive because they're finally opening their hearts to understanding something that before they probably were more closed off to. So I'll give you an idea of what it was like observing Ramadan, like before world championships, right? We, I think one of my toughest times of observing Ramadan have been right before world championships. We've been in countries where you have to fast, like the sun is up for like 18 hours a day, like in Poland, right? (laughs) And in the fencing space, a lot of the coaches are from former Soviet countries. They have a like a very like misogynistic, to be honest, like racist view of the world sometimes. Mm. And so they did not understand why I was fasting. Like it didn't make sense to them. Like they would say things like, so stupid what you're doing. Are you like, oh yeah, like what? Like there was no um allowance made for me, right? Like, no, like wouldn't it be awesome if I had a coach that made sure that the kitchen prepared food for me, like, you know, the cafeteria like prepared food for me so that I wouldn't have to worry about, you know, finding food for, um, for breakfast. Like I have to eat before the sun comes up. Like, wouldn't it be great to have a coaching staff that made sure that I had the proper food so that I could sustain energy throughout training camp. Mm. Right. Um, but no, <laughs> I had to like do all of this myself. Like I had to, literally learn to show up for myself and to be honest I feel like it's made me a stronger person I did not have supportive teammates I was surrounded by a lot of white folks who did not care about me um and made sure I understood that they thought I was so different from them that there was no meeting of the like in the middle Mm -hmm. I, I was constantly made to feel different and I'm so thankful of the strength that I feel like I've always had And why I feel like it's important, like on the back end to tell the story is because not everybody has that. And I think that's okay. You don't have to have it, right? And we all have moments where like we cry, (laughs) where we're tired, where we're exhausted and we feel weak, but um, you know, not everybody has that strength to like show up for themselves. It takes a lot to persevere and find yourself like, you know, in the WNBA, to find yourself one of the best in your sport, to find yourself one of the best in the world, if not the best, Lisa, right? It takes <laughs> a lot to do. Yeah, it, it, it is hard work. But you know, it Taj, I, I look at, I feel like in some ways our journeys have been similar, maybe for all the Black athletes, because I'm sure we all have these stories to tell about when we didn't feel necessarily as accepted or in these spaces. But I could also say that in my world travels, I've also met some really great people, learned about some amazing cultures and religions, and have been able to take little pieces of that. Being a, a Christian, and I was saved when I was seven years old, always loved the Lord, always been a very prayerful child in person. And I think in having those values, there's always been a limit to what I'm willing to do. And I love that in the same way that you say, having your faith and not knowing life without it, I feel the same way. But I can also say I've met some really amazing, I have great Jewish friends and have learned so much about their culture and little pieces that I like to take from there. Amazing Muslim. I used to date a guy who was Muslim, enjoyed a lot of parts of his culture and able to, I always got a guy, don't I? But I mean, you know, I, I did. He was great. But we knew there was a certain intersection of values that didn't necessarily all the way connect, but a great experience, great opportunity to learn. Is there any experiences that you've had with people on these journeys 
or learning about other religions where you go, hey, that's not necessarily what we practice, but I do like that. And I would like to take a piece of that and add that to my life or even when I have a family. What I wish people understood is that people like of the book, right? People of faith are way more alike and connected than they are, you know, different. Mm -hmm. Some of my closest friends are super devout Christians, right? Who are like very, very, very religious. And there's so many similarities in the way that we think and the way that we operate, the way that we kind of move through life. Yeah. Um, And I've always appreciate that, especially as like a transplant to LA, there's not a ton of Muslims. Like even when you think about it, how many Muslim women or like visibly Muslim people, Trini, do you see in LA? You like never see them unless you see me. (laughs) So my, um, it's funny because I feel like my, these friends that I've kind of adopted who are also like transplants to LA, they're super devout Christian women, to be honest. Mm. And I think for the, Honestly, like one of the first times in my life, I really realized how connected I am just to people who are like prayerful, who like are faithful and um, who are super connected to their faith. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's important. And, you know, I'm glad we're connecting here because now I could be another one of them added to the mix. Uh, (laughs) and, And, you know, you mentioned earlier about how you really took your, I guess you can say metaphorically, faith to another level after it was tested when you're professional and you're losing and things are really hard and it grounded you. And it's funny because when you say that, my family, Christian, we're Catholic. I will always think about how NECA, big sis, um, went to go play in Kursk, Russia. And she finds, and you know, we're Nigerian, Igbo, an Igbo Catholic priest in her village of Kursk, Russia. And that sort of brought everything together. Like that's the beauty of being a part of, you know, a greater community, a community of faith. You're out there by yourself and to have some kind of symbol of acknowledgement of that struggle, but also the strength that you can find in religion has been really cool. And so like growing up, you know, we were in Houston, Texas, where we were, you know, the I wouldn't say the odd women out, but we were probably the only young, you know, black women in our classes or one of the few. Um, and you've said that you, you were one of the only Muslim families in your town growing up as well. Um, was there ever a moment where you sort of doubted your faith? I know when I heard all the gospel music and people turning up at, you know, some of the other churches that my friends would go to as a Catholic, I was like, oh, ours is like a little stiffer. You know, our, our yeah. practice is a little stiffer. <laughs> Did you ever have that process growing up where you were like, oh, temptation was there, but then you decided to stay with it. And then obviously we, we are rewarded and we reap the benefits of that too. Yeah. Um, no. Uh, and I think it's because, <laughs> like, no, yeah, um, no. <laughs> you know why? I think it's because, um, for me, there was just like a norm that was created by my parents in a way that like, I didn't think it was strange that we had to wake up before the sun came up to fast. I didn't think it was weird, but I thought everybody got up to pray really early in the morning. Like I honestly, like even from a young age, like we used to go to the mosque and stuff as kids and we were super connected to the mosque, especially as um, when we were super young. So I don't know if I've ever had a point where I like questioned my faith, right? But I do have moments, like everybody, I'm sure, like you have moments, you're like, dang, God, why didn't that happen for me yet, right? But you have to believe in his timing, mm-hmm. right? And you have to like be patient. You have to 
acknowledge the gifts. Like um, a few, what was it? Like a little over a year ago now, I lost my older sister. She like very suddenly passed away. And that moment taught me to like appreciate small things, even like your next breath to me. It's not promised, right? Tomorrow's not promised to any of us. Mm-hmm. And having lost someone so close to me has taught me to, to appreciate every relationship, mm-hmm. to appreciate my ability to be active, my health, like your wealth, everything that you have, right? Because it can, it could like all be taken from you just like that. And even the people who are closest to you, right? Like it's something that I am just so much more aware of, like just to be thankful and thankful for every single moment. And for me, like even in difficult moments, my faith teaches me to like, you know, count your blessings. Can you speak to that a little more specifically in terms of on a day, like give us a glimpse of a day. How does it start? How does it end in terms of faith and prayer? Just in case some of our listeners and for myself, sometimes again, just to be able to take pieces that can add to us being better, you know, having that time and that space to talk with God personally, I know is very important. And you guys have a consistent time of day that you do that. Can you just tell us specifically what that is? So uh, one of the tenets of our faith are uh, to pray, right? So we pray five times a day where you stop what you're doing, right? When the prayer comes in. So there's a morning prayer, like early afternoon, midday, sunset, and then like a few hours after sunset, like an evening prayer. Do you have an alarm set like on your clock when it's time? Oh, like, yeah, there's apps on your now. Like, it's amazing. Yeah. Like, it tells you time to pray, right? Um, not everybody prays on time, right? I need to preface the <laughs> But um, you make an ablution, like with water. So like you clean out your mouth, your nose, like you... Uh, like run the water, like kind of brush your hair a little bit. Um, You clean your feet so that you're showing up clean for prayer, right? Mm. And it's super fast. Like you can say short like verses from the Quran. You can say longer like chapter from the Quran. Um, And I feel like that moment, right? It kind of like reminds you of yoga in a way, right? Because like you're moving like through these motions of prayer, Mm -hmm. um, but also like you're super focused in that moment. Right. And I think that having that time throughout the day, it causes you to like pause and reflect. Right. And it's honestly like it's a remembrance of God. And that's why also fasting is such a big part of our faith as well. Right. So we all know about Ramadan. Right. And Muslims fast once a year, um, 29 or 30 days right, for the month of Ramadan. But you also have what we call Sunnah fast. This is something that like Prophet Muhammad did from like just Mondays and Thursdays. So you have like my dad fast Mondays and Thursdays, right? It was just for him. Like, and is that a sunup sundown fast or is that a... Yeah. And it's so easy now in the winter, especially once you fall back, right? Spring ahead's harder, but fall back, like <laughs> look down on the East Coast at like 3 p.m. So you're fasting a short day. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, like, think about it when you're hungry, when you're thirsty, even when we were training, it's so difficult, right? Because all you're thinking about is like how hungry you are or how thirsty you are, especially on those long days of training. But it gives you pause, like, to reflect because there is blessing in knowing where your next meal will come from, right? Mm -hmm. That you have access to clean drinking water. There are people, millions of people around the world who don't have that opportunity. So um, again, I think that 
what I love about my faith is that it's mindfulness and it, it reminds me to um, just be thankful. And, um, you know, those are all beautiful reminders of that you get like consistently throughout the day. And I think that's something we all now are practicing, even if people don't acknowledge it, like meditation or intermittent fasting. These are all words that are going out in culture and it's all rooted in your faith, which I think people need to start appreciating a little bit more. But, um, you know, before we get to our final portion, which is, you know, fun, rapid fire, um, I just wanted to know what you think, you know, we're in 2020, we've been in pandemic. A lot of people have time to just think for themselves, to evaluate how they've been treating one another. And I know pre-2020, there was a lot of progress to be made when it comes to the Muslim community. How would you say things are going now? Not saying that you're an ambassador or anything, just as a human being that we have access to, which is rare considering, you know, LA, we we know how it is. And our listeners hopefully will understand, like, how would you say things are now? Obviously, we have a lot of work to do on all regards, but do you feel like things are moving in a better direction where people are educating themselves and not just coming and assuming a lot of things? I think that's a layered question uh, for like a few reasons. I hate to say that, you know, now that there's more people who have joined our fight, right? Even when you think about black, like our fight for black lives, now that, you know, um, during a pandemic, we as black people have literally been in a fight for our right to exist. It's like now in 2020, there are people for the first time in their lives who are realizing, huh, like I, I didn't know you guys were struggling like that. I didn't know that the system was literally built against you. And that to me can be really frustrating. But at the same time, it's like, well, thank God at some point you've arrived at this, you know, epiphany, like, right. It's, it's bet. I like, I'll take it. But do we want to begin to like, you know, um, I don't want us to be complacent. I'm someone who is detained at the airport after a World Cup, after representing my country at the Olympic Games. Like, that was a very real experience for me. I know what it feels like to be targeted for being Muslim. I know what it feels like to, um, to be discriminated against for being Black. I live at a very, very interesting intersection when it comes to identity. And... I'm very hesitant to say that there's been progress, right? Because to me, true progress is equal access, uh, equal justice for everyone. That's progress, right? When you have people who will sit around and be like, well, we gave you a little bit, that's not enough, mm-hmm. right? And the fact that we, everybody on this call is fearful if they get pulled over by police is problematic, right? That's a problem. So. I don't know. I'm hesitant to say that that there's been progress because I, I want to see a world for my nieces and nephews that is equal for them. You know, that part. Period. Period. <laughs> the end. Iftahaj, we thank you so much for joining us, opening up your heart, educating us and our listeners. But before we let you go, we have to ask you some rapid fire questions. Don't be nervous. It's, it's nervous. very simple. <laughs> First question. What book is on your nightstand right now? So interesting. Um, and this is like a plug, kind of, but not really. My book is yes. on my nightstand. I'm reading it. My book, Proud, My Fight for an Unlikely American Dream, 
is on my nightstand because my um, my nephew is visiting with me and he wanted to read it together. Oh, that's so cute. Okay, um, next question. What is your biggest splurge? Biggest splurge, um, like in life? Yeah. Yeah, what you, what you spend some cash flow on? When have I ever spent cash on? You know, I got tired of waiting for a diamond, so I bought myself my own. Yes! <laughs> Energy! <laughs> right? Wait. I'm like, why do I wait for a man to buy them things? I'll just buy them myself. There you go. So here's your next question. What are three things eight-year-old Iptahaj would have in her pocket? Uh, three things that eight-year-old Iptahaj would have in her pocket. Um, a Barbie doll. Or like something dealing with a Barbie doll. Okay. Because I have a uh, What else would I have in my pocket? Um, I don't know. That's a tough one. But I was very obsessed with, with Barbies as a kid. And you got so, one, you got one, uh, one year, right? You have your own Barbie too. Yes, I do. But yes, I would have like a hair tie or like my Barbie shoes or something like that. <laughs> like I was very attached to Barbie and I love to write. So maybe I would have like a notebook and like pen with me or something nice. like that. Very good. Okay. So what is a talent not in your chosen profession that no one else knows you're good at? Um, I'm like super good with my hands, like DIY anything. Like I can fix things. Like I've tiled like my parents like backslash. I've refaced Whoa. their fireplace. Like, oh, nice. That's we impressive. That. Okay. So let's see. Who was the last person you kissed? Um, my, my nephew this morning, he's 16 months. Oh, <laughs> he's 16 months. Oh, yeah, babies. What is the song that's stuck in your head right now? Um, I like Juice World right now. Anybody? Jessie? Yes. I think it's Come and Go. I like that song. It's stuck in my head. Yeah. Oh, I got to listen to that. I don't know that song. <laughs> okay. Last question. What is the mantra that stays front and center in your life? The mantra I feel like that I try to lead my days with is uh, to put my faith before my fears. And no matter what's happening, whether I've one day lost, whatever, whatever's gone in my life, I, I honestly try to lead every single day with faith and never let, um, you know, my fear precede that. I got goosebumps as you were saying that. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much, Itihaj, um, for being here. Where can our listeners find you? What are you up to next? Um, what am I up to? Um, I don't know, life, trying to make it through quarantine. I am not super active on social, as active as, as I'd like to be, but I am on social media, itihajmohammed.com. Um, and I'm excited for my next children's book. That's what I'm working on right now. Nice. Thanks for having me, guys. Yes, thank you for being here. We're so happy. You have blessed us with a word, with some inf informed us with some great information. And well, we thank you for being here. Thanks, on girl. Front, on front and center. <laughs> Thank you.
All right, y'all. Our next guest is the renowned writer and also culture critic. I love it because she was previously a reporter at the Washington Post and has been a culture critic. And I don't say critic, like she's a culture goddess um, for the undefeated uh, since 2016. It's true. It's true. Um, (laughs) And she's got the facts to back it up because she was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize this year. And so we are so pleased, delighted to welcome to our show, Front and Center, Soraya McDonald. Thanks for joining us. Woo-hoo. Oh, my goodness. Thank you for having me. Wow. This that's so an cool. honor. The Pulitzer. Woo. Yeah, big time. So I have to tell you, um, <laughs> you know, that that's huge, right? We should just stop and just clap for that alone because that's outstanding. <laughs> but we're really happy to have you. And today we have been really putting a spotlight on religion Shanae and I are both Christians. We are, you know, openly we talk about our faith and our religion. But I think also we're in a time right now where uh, people have to learn to be more inclusive in recognizing that we may look alike, but we don't all have the same values. We don't all have the same beliefs. And some of us do. And so we thought it would be great to sort of have this conversation. Um, We've already spoken um, to Ibtahaj who is a Muslim and had an awesome conversation with her. And so we wanted to talk to you about your faith um, as a black Jewish woman. And I know your mother was Jewish. Can you talk to us about growing up and this evolution of your relationship with your faith? Sure. Um, oh boy. That's, that's <laughs> interesting. Um, yes. Although uh, I'm going to start off like, and preface that by saying that I am, a rarely practicing Jew. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, I think um, there have been, you know, surveys and, and studies that have been done showing um, that the U.S. is growing more secular. And so I think I'm part of, you know, quite a big group of folks who identify with religion, both culturally and, you know, as a, and spiritually, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think you find it. Yeah. Like you find that with Catholics a lot. Um, even if they don't necessarily go to mass every Sunday. Um, so I just, I want to say that. So I am not like, (laughs) I I am not like a, a scholar of the Torah. Um, (laughs) but, uh, so, so I just want to get that out of the way. Like I'm not a Talmudic expert by, by any stretch, but yeah. So, uh, you know, I grew up in a small town in North Carolina called Goldsboro. Uh, it was like, it was my father's, like, it was the last base that he was stationed at. My father was in the Air Force. And then I think my parents had just gotten tired of moving. And so they always said that we were going to leave and then we just never did. Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, my father grew up, um, you know, he's one of 11 children. My grandparents were sharecroppers. Um, and my grandfather, uh, was a sort of fire and brimstone preacher, you know, one of his favorite uh, Bible passages that he loved to quote was, was spare the rod and spoil the child. And so like my father just didn't have a great relationship with organized religion. Um, my mother is Dutch. Um, she was born in Suriname, grew up in Amsterdam. Uh, and just didn't there's just a different relationship I think that Europeans in general have with religion you know it's it's 
I think it's far more casual than it is for Americans mm-hmm. in some ways. Um, and so, you know, when they had me, there just wasn't like a focus <laughs> really. Um, we didn't go to church, mm-hmm. um, but you know, a lot of the sort of, actually I would say, you know, I get this or I notice it like from both of them now, just the sort of the cultural totems that become like part of religious observance that you um, you take with you, like even if you stop going to church every Sunday. Right. Um, you know, because I know like one of the records that my father used to listen to repeatedly, um, you know, and he knew like every... Uh, <laughs> Every lick, every ad lib is um, is Aretha Franklin's "Amazing Grace," you know, because oh, okay. it and it reminded him mm-hmm. of you know the church where he used to go when he um, when he was growing up. And then you know, with my mother, sort of the way that showed up culturally was just you know we had a menorah, um, we you know we also had a Christmas tree. <laughs> um, yeah lots of books about Jewish thinkers and certainly about World War II and the Holocaust, um, particularly because my mom was Dutch. Um, we had so many different books about Anne Frank. <laughs> Anne Frank in English, Anne Frank, Anne Frank in Dutch. <laughs> yeah. Anne Frank, right? Like, you know, I the book those, that, like, that Niebke's and Otto Frank wrote, like, after, like, just all the Anne Frank books. Yeah. <laughs> um, I also realized like, as you know, like once you finally become old enough that you start going to other kids' houses and realize that like everybody doesn't have like yes. friends of like Dutch masters everywhere. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I was like, so, Oh so no, the, the whole like Rembrandt thing, like oh, yeah. that is, that's unique to Lillian. But it sounds like then that the impact of, maybe part of the Jewish religion, but religion in your home also was just an influence of education. You know, you having the opportunities to have the exposure to reading and it's introduced to you probably in a very non-traditional way, which sometimes is good because maybe you're not so locked into all the man-made rules that sometimes come along with religion as well. But what then does your religion or your relationship, I guess, with your faith look like today? Yeah, so it's very much absent of dogma, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you know, as I've like gotten older, like my curiosity in Judaism has actually increased, um, especially, you know, the more I learned about like the relationship or relationships between feminism and Judaism. Like that mm-hmm. was actually probably what first got me interested because I was like reading plays, you know, and books by Wendy Wasserstein um, mm-hmm. and Susan Faludi and Eve Ensler, um, you know, and their, their Jewishness was like a big part of their identity as women. Um, you know, so I would say now, I think I'm probably like a lot of reform Jews in that, you know, I'm like kosher for Passover and, you know, we observe the high holy days and, and then you just kind of go back to 
cheeseburgers. And- <laughs> <laughs> but you know what's funny, Soraya? Everything else. You know what's funny, though? Um, I think, you know, one thing that I've come to love, especially in your work, is how while you might be trying to process what you have been feeling, your emotions, and as Lisa alluded to, like, you know, educating yourself to your passions, you've also, in the same process, used your work to educate others. And so when we talk about like what has happened over the last few months, of course, there have been cries for social justice. And also we've looked in the mirror when it comes to being a Black community, not just in the U.S., but just globally, how we can improve as a Black community. And I think one of the articles that you wrote was just, it outlined a line spot amongst our community that I think we can work at. Even as you are processing your your own feelings and emotions and your relationship with faith, your work helped educate me. And one of those, um, the titles of your work is, I'm a Jew of color. I won't be quiet about anti-Semitism. And it was basically stemming mm-hmm. on Nick Cannon's comments and also Diddy, you know, having his support for certain groups. And then also, you know, we mm-hmm. work at the intersection of sports and society where we're dealing with comments from Deshaun Jackson and, you know, even Steven Jackson mm-hmm. at times that might be problematic amongst our community. And so looking to you, even within my circle, I was like, wow, she really has highlighted some area that we really need to shed light on because we can't uplift ourselves while not uplifting others. We have to all sort of follow that same energy. So can you sort of tell me the inspiration between you writing that piece and how your position helped? I mean, it helped me a lot. Yeah. Um, I got so angry when I saw Nick Cannon's comments, frankly. Um, And it is, you know, I don't set out to write, like look for like, oh, what can I write a personal essay about today? In fact, it's usually the opposite. It's like, there's something that's like nagging at me where I'm like, oh, okay, like I, I should do this, you know, because really like how many like Black Jews are there writing for, for news sites? Mm-hmm. Um, more like the definitely more than just me. And I think, oh, I rem- you know what I do now I'm remembering exactly what happened because normally I would just defer to Adam Serwer and I think Adam was taking a break from Twitter at the time. And so like, I didn't know if, <laughs> I don't know if he was going to write anything or not. Cause I was, I think actually I probably just tweeted his piece on Tamika Mallory and Louis Farrakhan that, you know, and so I'm thinking like Adam has already addressed this. Like, but it was just like, it really bothered me. And then like, I remembered that Nick, you know, had like enrolled at Howard. Um, and then I remembered, like, I had this really visceral experience with anti-Semitism, like, while I was in college. And I was like, okay, I guess, you know. It's Can you describe that? Where, like, I know you outlined it in the piece. I'm just for the, you know, our podcast listeners. Yeah, who may not yeah absolutely. It. So I was in, you know, it was one of my advanced journalism classes when I was at Howard. And I had a professor uh, who kind of went on a tirade. You know, he had started out basically wanting to make a point to Black journalists about being protective of their work or our work, because, you know, more often than not, the person editing you, particularly in, you know, a sort of big major newsroom, um, unless you're working for, for Black media in particular, is going to be a white person. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and there are cultural differences. And then when it, he decided to use to illustrate this was he had just taken umbrage with his editor, you know, I think adding a clause, you know, that described Louis Farrakhan as anti-Semitic, which is pretty accurate. Uh, Louis Farrakhan has, you know, repeatedly uh, said things that are extremely anti-Semitic. And he, you know, he was really angry about that. And then that sort of spiraled, my professor, and then that sort of spiraled into his own, what I would say is anti-Semitic tirade, (laughs) you know, sort of about Jews having like too much power in the media. And so I'm just sort of sitting there in class because like he, you know, because I didn't say anything, but he didn't know this about me, but a friend of mine did, uh, who actually like used to work for the undefeated um Danielle Scruggs and you know I remember like sort of she looked at me she knew and I looked at her and she was just you know she sort of mouthed at me I'm sorry because we're both sort of sitting there like horrified Mm. uh and then you know this wasn't necessarily like a huge class there were maybe 15 or 20 people and so you're sort of looking around and like no one else is really saying anything either and you know it just it stayed with me. And so, you know, when this instance came up, when, when Nick Cannon was speaking, you know, I finally said, I, you know, I should say something. Mm-hmm. Um, it was because this is really dangerous. And I think I have always been, I think, like aware on some level of the sort of underlying danger that I'm in as a Black person in America, because that has just always been a fact of my existence and my life, right? Like when I was in kindergarten, my father was like waiting with me for the bus to come in the morning and a police officer asked him what he was doing there. And he said, minding my own business, you know, and then this became sort of like this the story that gets told so you like you know you you understand from a very early age but for like I think most of my experience growing up I understood anti-semitism as something that happened during World War II (laughs) like anti-semitism was concentration camps and Mm -hmm. ovens and tattoos and Hitler and you know um And so in 2016, when, you know, particularly like right after, you know, in the wake, the first few weeks after the election, where there are these news reports of swastikas being painted um, in public places and Jewish cemeteries being destroyed or desecrated, right? And then by the time you have Charlottesville and you have men, you know, chanting, you know, as they're walking down the street, Jews will not replace us. You know, I remember like in 2016, my mother getting much more worried (laughs) and, you know, and saying like, this is, this is the stuff that we learned about, you know, in terms of like the atmosphere of the country, like this feels way too much like the Weimar Republic. And, and weirdly enough, I think, you know, as Jews, you know, become sort of more under attack, we kind of bind together (laughs) uh you realize you know maybe Mm -hmm. some of the things that you take for granted 
because I mean, there's like, there's an entire like stereotype about self-hating Jews, right? <laughs> like we're always trying to run away from our own, our own religion. But you, it's because you can be at ease enough to sort of take those things for granted. Um, and then once something truly violent occurs or keeps occurring over and over again, um, you start to seek out community. Like that's certainly um, what happened for me after the Tree of Life synagogue shooting in Pittsburgh um, was like the first time in a long time that I was just like, I, I want to go to shul. <laughs> and part of that was because I just hated it. Every time I went to temple, um, you know, there's always like you see the sort of inquisitive looks on people's faces. You know, they're trying to figure, trying to puzzle out, like how are, how do you fit here? But um, I want to ask you about that because I think that's so interesting. That as a black woman and as a Jewish woman, you're in these situations where you know what you believe, but your relationship with Judaism could be complicated just based on the color of your skin and being oftentimes in white spaces, if you will. How have you been able to deal with that when, you know, part of you is like, wait, no, I'm one of you, but you could still be discriminated against? I think it's actually like finding a a community with other um, Jews of color. Really? Okay. Um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that was, you know, because then now it's like you end up feeling less isolated because you all have the same stories got it (laughs) basically Mm -hmm. um and so like you know one of my friends Shonda Prescott Weinstein um who's a physicist who actually has a book coming out soon she was just this like really vocal like brainy woman on Twitter who spoke her mind who's really smart and I was just so intrigued by her and Mm -hmm. also like you know basically like every time I see another black Jewish person I'm like I want to know you. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, like, so when I was growing up, like when I learned that Lenny Kravitz was Jewish, like I, this was, this was amazing <laughs> for me. You know, like we just, we have an inclination to seek out other well, I think people it's normal like though, right? You want to know people yeah. that are like you, that look like you, that believe like you. I think it's, it's a normal process. And it's it, the whole point of us having this conversation is so that our audience can hear and see and we have to learn to stop being so judgmental of people just based on the outside or based on skin color, because there's so much more to each of yes. us, so yeah. much more to each of us. And I, I wish we had more more time wait, wait, to, but before, to talk well, about it. Before we segue, though, I, yeah, you know, you do such great work. And I know you took the time, which I truly appreciate, Soraya, for like talking about you. But you also keep a pulse on the culture, period. And so I always joke, like, I'm the young one here. Lisa's the seasoned one. You know, I'm flavor. And so <laughs> I just was curious, like, where would you evaluate the state of our culture? Like, obviously, you've seen things, you know, when it comes, it pertains to religion, being a Black woman, whatever the case is. You know, you're constantly articulating the state of the culture. How do you see the culture right now moving forward holistically? Because you are more attuned to all of the all aspects of it than we are at times. You mean like culture of like just everything, like as like as Americans or like in terms of like as you follow it, as you follow it, do you find anything happening that is a shift, whether it's generationally, whether it Mm. is just how we move? Like, 
because you study this on the day to day and you understand the leading voices. So I was just curious, you know, since you're someone that has lived it and we talk about it, I would love to get your perspective on it. You know, uh, this is an idea that I've been turning around in my head. So it's, you know, it's incomplete. So please forgive me for that. (laughs) The thing that um, I've been like, sort of, I've started like reading books and trying to educate myself and, and wrestle with is, so it very much feels like we're in the middle of a sort of second renaissance, you know, like the, with the first one being the Harlem Renaissance, sorry, um, as opposed to the actual renaissance. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But, but it does, in terms of Black American culture, um, and actually like, not just that, but like throughout the diaspora, I would say, there has been this blossoming um, where, and like part of what's wonderful is that, um, you know, it really runs the gamut from almost unwatchable to superb, right? And mediocre and everything in between. I'm really happy about the freedoms that I see artists taking and the risks that they're taking and um, and the honesty that they bring to their work. But like within that, what I've noticed um, is what really feels like, like the people and the artists who are sort of leading this renaissance are really from the South. And it could just be that I'm biased because I'm, because I grew up from <laughs> North Carolina but when I think about folks like Jasmine Ward and Kaizi Lehman, Tracy McMillan Cottom, uh, Megan B. Stallion, like there, it's really like across a bunch of different media, even in the election, right? Over and over again, what you see is Southern Black women, femmes, queer people um, who are really pushing. Uh, the boundaries of the culture and pushing us toward democracy, bringing those words to fruition. You know, you see it with, like, I'm just, I am thrilled to see a variety of television shows about Black Southern people and they're not hicks. (laughs) You know, they're not, you know, they're not portrayed as sort of bumbling and uneducated or just diabetic or whatever, right? Like there is this sort of wonderful um, complexity, I feel like in these stories um, that are coming out of the South that has always been there, but hasn't necessarily been appreciated in that way. You know, and part of that I think is when you have someone who is like as big a superstar as Beyonce, who is from Houston, you know, who has held on to her Houston accent through decades, including, you know, when people would say that, you know, she basically, that she sounded uneducated, Um, you know, and now people realize, oh, she's, she just, she sounds like she's from Houston. She just Texas. (laughs) She just Texas. Exactly. She's just Texas. But recent, you know, in the years that she has really started deeply exploring what it means, um, you know, on both sides of her family, her heritage, you know, also from Louisiana, um, you know, including like these really sort of obvious references to Julie Dash um, in the 
visual album for oh gosh which one black is king oh lemonade yeah 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 like it's incredible how like what she can release something she can release one album right one visual album (laughs) and it just sort of like resurrects interest in this black woman and her work and so like julie dash is actually getting work again um and the thing that she was or the subject that she was talking about, you know, the focus of Daughters of the Dust is the Gullah people um, in Low Country, you know, mm-hmm. South Carolina. Um, and I grew so, up on Gullah Gullah Island, the show, so continue. There you go. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> when I see that, I just, when I see that, when I think of what Black women did in Georgia, when I think of what Black women did to, you know, even though he lost re-election to get Doug Jones to the Senate, um, when I think of so many people I know who are saying, look, you know, still like Andre 3000, the South got something to say, Yeah. Um, you know, that you can't just like write off Alabama and Mississippi, um, you know, because you don't like the folks that they send to Washington and not understand the sort of rampant voter suppression that takes place there. Mm-hmm. Um, and also just the amazing sort of like, textual contributions that they have given to civil rights. When you think about Fannie Lou Hamer, when you think about the Mississippi Freedom Democrats, right? All of these things. Yeah. Um, I'm like, okay, like finally, finally folks are getting it. Like, you know, there is, there is a black South that is really, truly like rich and amazing and textural and sophisticated and I'm so glad that folks are actually starting to appreciate that now. It's Amen. not just Eudora Welty and William Faulkner. Yes. Like, right. look, better late than never, but you're right. And in the words of someone that I've come to admire over the last election process, Abby Phillips, what you described was historical poetry in its finest forms. So, Soraya, woo, man, that was a word. Oh, my God. I got goosebumps like three times while you were talking because your, your girl's a, a Black girl from the South, so you were giving me energy. But... Uh, <laughs> Before, before we let you go, uh, we have to hit you with our rapid fire questions because these are always fun. So are you ready for the challenge? <laughs> sure. Let's do it. All right. And I know you got a lot of options based on your background right now. What is the book that is on your nightstand right now? Oh, um, there are a few. Um, so I know I have this habit of like buying books to soothe myself when I get anxious and I bought a lot of books before the election was called. Um, Me too. <laughs> which then, like, which then arrived like in the last couple of days, and I was just like, and I, you know, I kept getting these packages that were sort of like these physical manifestations of my anxiety, and I was like, oh wow, that was a lot. Um, but right now, so there's Alexandra Petri's uh, "Nothing Wrong," and and this is why. But also uh, Gavin DeBecker, who is like the security guy for Jeff Bezos, <laughs> um, has a new book. And I'm not exactly sure what possessed me to buy this. <laughs> Just wanted <laughs> to see I... if there was some insight going on. Like, what did he see? Yeah, what, yeah, um, what did he see from his vantage point? <laughs> yeah, because it's, it's called The Gift of Fear and other survival signals that protect us from violence or it's like the updated edition of that it's like because usually i am very much like 
you know, FDR, you know, the, the, the only thing to fear is fear itself. Like I'm, I'm very much a proponent of that. I just like, why do I need this? Yeah. Um, well, it's been a lot to just be like, aside from all that we know, it has been a lot for everybody to process and to get through mentally, physically, to stay, whew, you know, above water. Yeah. It's been a lot. It has been. And I think for all of our brains. And then, first off, we're in a pandemic, you know? <laughs> so there's a lot there you, to, <laughs> you know, a lot of our habits that we're used to having are gone that had us sitting still. And like you said, reading books, we've read more, having a podcast. I mean, doing way more social media than I would have ever done. So many of our habits have changed. But let me get back to the topic of our rapid fire because I love talking right. to you. Uh, what is your biggest splurge? What have you bought? Probably the books, right? <laughs> um, my biggest splurge. Oh, wow. It's actually not. Um, no, but I will share it with you because it, it actually it truly is a splurge because I bought it with journalism prize money. <laughs> um, oh, nice. Which is, uh, I bought myself a fancy pen when I won the George Nathan Award. Oh, what did you year. buy? So I a got LeBlanc? myself like, what is yes, that? I got myself like a rose gold. Yes. Uh, Blanc. <laughs> so Mont that Blanc, was... rose gold, Olivia Pope White. Yes, sis. Yes. <laughs> this is, this is my square. <laughs> I love nice. that. Love that it. by far is probably our favorite answer so far. Um, what are three things eight-year-old Soraya would have in her pocket? Uh... Probably rocks. Um, probably a babysitter's club book in my like nice. eight year old purse. Because <sighs> um, that like I don't know if I can fit it in a pocket, but I I would have it on my person. <laughs> um, and my library card. Oh, nice! I love that you're such an avid reader. My daughter is an avid reader, and I'm so happy. <laughs> So that just makes me feel good because she's read like all the Babysitter Club uh, books. <laughs> she loves it. And she's read every book about a dog. Uh, okay. So what is a talent not in your chosen profession that no one else knows that you're good at? Oh, God. Um, so I will occasionally tweet about this, but I will never, you will never see me like post a video to TikTok. Um, so when I was growing up, like I used to... Like part of the reason why I write about theater is because I love theater. And you know, basically like I listened to the divas to sort of teach myself how to sing. So I listened to a lot of Mariah Carey, nice. a lot of Barbara Streisand. <laughs> and like when my parents would go out and they would leave me in the house and like say, you have to wash the dishes. Like I would turn the music up really loud and sing along to one of those two <laughs> usually. Nice. So I have Aww. an okay voice. Yes, yeah, so you can, sis can hold a tune. Okay. <laughs> love it. Love it. Okay, how about this one? Um, who was the last person you've kissed? Oh god. Okay, first of all, it's like that would have to be in like March <laughs> pre-quarantine. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's been a real lonely quarantine. Um <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's okay. You Half of our people plead the fifth. Yeah, yeah, no. Worries. I'm like, I'm trying to, I'm honestly trying to remember, and I, girl, a lot of us are okay. 
You guys are funny. Okay, here's the next question. What is a song that's stuck in your head right now? Oh, um, it's Harry Styles' uh, Watermelon Sugar. Love it. (laughs) Harry Styles recently on Vogue. Okay, doing it different. I love it. Yes. I want to hear, like, uh, an HBCU marching band, like, arrangement of that song. Like, so bad. Everything is better once HBCU marching bands do their rendition, okay? That is like the ultimate award right there. And now last but not least, um, what is the mantra that stays front and center in your life? Oh, that's easy Um, because it's from my editor and it's on a sticky note on my computer screen and it says, give yourself permission to be human. Oh, nice. Oh, I love it. That was fantastic. Oh my gosh, Soraya, thank you so much for joining us and enlightening us on your own personal journey, your own personal experience, because you operate at so many intersections. But most importantly, you, you know, I always tell people, we try to educate ourselves so that we can educate others. You're one of those people that are doing that through your work in an area that we all see is evolving, especially for the culture. So once again, thank you for joining us. Oh my gosh, thank you for having me. I had like no athletic skill at all as a child. (laughs) Like my father, actually, yeah, when I was like nine, he got me a tennis racket because he thought he was going to be Richard Williams and that did (laughs) not happen. But we also had a basketball goal and like I was literally telling Steve today, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so excited. I was like, Lisa Leslie. That is funny. I was like, eight-year-old was like, oh my God, I'm such a dad. Thank you so, so much. We can't thank you enough for joining us. And we will be right back. All right, y'all. That is our show. And it was a great one. We had two queens today. It was so amazing. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to our podcast. You can follow me at Chinay, C-H-I-N-E-Y. And you, Lise? You can follow me on Instagram, on Twitter, at Lisa Leslie. How at you, girl? Yes. And you can email us, frontandcenter at bluewirepods.com. Again, email us, the queens here, uh, frontandcenter at bluewirepods.com. Bye. Bye. Bye.